Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Folda, and this week we're going to talk about a relatively well-traveled story. It's the current update on what's happening with the BT Brinjal in India. Now, many of you have heard the stories about the BT Brinjal in Bangladesh and the good things it's done there. We've covered that extensively here on the podcast with Dr. Tony Shelton and a few different episodes previously. But today we're going to go to Tuskegee University and talk to an old friend, Dr. Chanapatna Prakash. Um, Dr. Prakash is the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Tuskegee University. But most of all, he's been a very visible and a well-spoken proponent of biotechnology, particularly in its applications throughout the developing world. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Prakash. Thank you, Kevin. It's really a pleasure to have you on board. And uh, I'm glad that you're, that you're willing to tell us all about this situation. But for a review, how important is the Brinjal for food security in India? It's it's a fairly important vegetable. In fact, it is the number one vegetable. Uh, if you consider, if you don't consider potatoes, which are in fact considered vegetables in India, uh, potato is number one, and eggplant or brinjal is number two. It's fairly important. It's grown all over the all over all across the country, and it's a very popular vegetable. You find many different types of uh, those vegetables. Uh, brinjal all, all across India. And what is the BT brinjal? What makes it unique? The BT essentially stands for Bacillus thuringiensis. It's a genetically modified version of brinjal where a, a, a single gene for an insecticidal protein has been introduced into this crop and this particular gene is borrowed from a bacteria that is found all across the world and has been used by organic farmers for the past 60 years to control uh, sucking pests like the fruit borer that is found on brinjal in India. And where has the BT brinjal been grown previously and has it been a success? Yes, it has been an astounding success. It's been grown for the past four years in Bangladesh, and it started with uh, just a handful of farmers, and now uh, it has grown exponentially, so that uh, literally thousands and thousands of very small farmers growing on half-acre, one-acre plots all across Bangladesh. And it's performing very well, so much so that their, uh, the, the recent study by Cornell, and I know you talked to Tony Shelton, and so you would know that farmers who grow BT eggplant or brinjal in Bangladesh uh, have seen substantial increase in their yield and also have seen a substantial decrease in their insect insecticide application. 
And could you tell us more about that? How, how dramatic is that decrease in insecticidal applications? Well, the most important pest on brinjal is uh, what we call as a fruit and shoot borer. It's a little caterpillar that just, you know, little bores into the, the fruit and it, this causes most extensive damage. And farmers literally don't have to spray anymore for control of this pest. And uh, they do need to use uh, probably a small amount of pesticides to control other pests such as aphids. But from all the, the, the research that I have seen, that the pesticide uh, application on beta brinjals is practically negligent. You should remember that all across uh, India and Bangladesh, farmers typically spray about 70, 80 times on a crop that's only like about three months um, duration. And so they're practically spraying it every other day. And, and so by those farmers who grow beta brinjal, from from eighty or ninety sprays, they are, they are they bring it down to about five or ten sprays of pesticides, mainly to control other pests, as I said. So this is very dramatic, very significant. And this is something that really reflects my ignorance as somebody here in the states who has plenty of food and can grow a garden without a problem. Mm-hmm. When you're spraying every three days, is it because? There are pests that are present that you are trying to eliminate, or is it a question that this is your family's income and your family's food, and so you feel the need to protect it? Maybe even if it's too much, you know, overspraying, yeah. just because you you need it's so valuable. Is that really part of the equation? Absolutely. You know, this is their livelihood, and so if they they get the crop and if they harvest it and take it to the market and sell. They get to eat that day. And so if it's your livelihood, you would do that too. And uh, the pests are so rampant uh, on not only brinjal, but also on many other vegetable crops like cauliflower and cabbage and tomatoes. Uh, It is the sad aspect of agriculture that so much pesticide need to be used. And some of that is probably um, used uh, too excessively. And again, Biotechnology is just, you know, is one of the solutions that farmers see not only cuts down the use of pesticide, but also the expense that goes along with it and uh, and the labor involved in spraying it. That is why you see wherever these Bt crops have been introduced, it has been embraced by farmers all around the world. Philippines, for instance, they have Bt corn and uh, Bt cotton, of course, is grown in many, many countries. And it's almost 100% acceptance in those countries where it has been introduced. Now, as the story goes, the BT Brinjal was really developed for India, not originally for Bangladesh. But why wasn't it approved in India? You're correct. It was first uh, developed in India by a country called Mahiko. uh, Sorry, by a company called Mahiko in partnership with a couple of agricultural universities because India is, on, is, is the largest producer of eggplants in the world. And so it just simply made sense. And they used the same gene that was used in Bt cotton, which has already been very successful in India. But uh, sadly, this was not approved 
by an environment minister at that time, about nine years ago, uh, Mr. Jairam Ramesh, despite the fact that it went through extensive testing uh, all across India, and it was approved by the biotechnology regulators in India after such extensive testing to make sure that it is safe for human consumption, it is safe from from animal for animal consumption, and it's also safe from an environmental point of view. It was not approved based on political reasons. It had nothing to do with science or safety. So the BT brinjal was something that was developed for India that is being held back probably because of political reasons more than scientific reasons. And now it's starting to leak its way back into India. And we'll talk about that when we come back on the other side of the break. We're speaking with Dr. C.S. Prakash. We're here on the Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everybody. It's me, Kevin. This episode marks the beginning of the fifth year of the Talking Biotech podcast. It's been almost 200 episodes and 935,000 downloads. (laughs) That's pretty amazing to me. Now, every week I somehow squeeze in the time to do the interview, the production, the website, the promotion, and I do it because it's my passion to share the science, especially around technologies that can help others or maybe even help the environment. If helping others understand what this is and what it isn't can bring nutrition to the malnourished or a new strategy to solve an environmental problem or or a cool new solution for the industrialized world farmer, then this investment is really worth it. Over the last five years, I have endured almost daily personal and professional defamation, mostly from those that need to stop this message. And since they can't stop the science, they go after those who support it, especially those who communicate it through mediums like the Talking Biotech podcast. So if you look online, you'll read really horrible things about me, even from, air quotes, friends of science. Now, I'm not going there. They've shared my personal financial information. They've encouraged violence against me and my family. They've broken confidential contractual obligations I've had with law firms and used harassment and intimidation to silence me. I mention this because if you have concerns about me or what I do or the behaviors I have at home or whatever, and it's really rotten stuff they say, I want you to reach out. Let's do a phone call, Skype, whatever. I have to take these extreme measures to protect my credibility and reputation because others are working overtime to take those things away. It's emotionally taxing and it's really exhausting. At least once a day, I'm convinced to quit. Could I just go back to the lab full-time and research and train students? I'd do that anyway. Sure, it'd be easy. But that's what they want worse. One of my students told me that even though he loves science communication, he can't risk his career because he sees what happens to me. And so he's keeping his head down and staying out of the discussion. Now think about that. So I have to continue because it's the right thing to do. 
If I quit, what does that look like to my students and postdocs or to others who want to share the beautiful stories of new technologies? So help me out. Share this podcast widely on social media. Tell friends. Invite others to this wonderful classroom. In 10 years, the world will be a very different place. And how do you want to look back on your actions in 2019? Did you do the convenient thing, the easy thing? Did you follow the crowd into a bad idea? Or did you think about situations critically? Did you stand up for science and reason? Did you fight for equal access to outstanding technology, especially for the food insecure and those desperately in need of medical solutions, the farmers, the environment, all the good people we fight for? I think I know what side of that equation I want to be on. And I'll keep this venture sailing into the next 200 episodes with the spirit of turning the other cheek, forgiving those that seek to harm us, and doing the right thing no matter how much it hurts. Thank you very much for listening, and thank you for all your support. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. C.S. Prakash uh, from Tuskegee University. Um, Prakash, how long have you been working in the area of the biotechnology discussion? Oh, more than 20 years. It's, uh, it's, been, it's been a long time. I always think of you as one of the leaders, one of the first people who were actively engaging through social media and, and alternative media um, quite a ways back now. I've been reading your stuff for a long time. So how, about how long has, has that been? Oh, I, you know, before this became controversial, um, in addition to being a scientist and a professor, I used to be a science communicator, kind of like you do. But in a small way, I used to write in the newspapers and magazines and speak to speak to local uh, speak at local schools and rotary clubs and things like that. And once uh, this became controversial, then I've simply drawn into the the global media uh, like you were. And so I've been, you know, I've been doing this uh, as an educational outreach for the last 30 years, but more into the, the controversy and speaking on the science part of the GMO controversy for the last probably 25 years now. And if you go back 30 years and you mm-hmm. think about, you know, where were we, you know, 1990, could you have ever predicted that these technologies would still be so arrested in their deployment in the developing world? Not in my wildest dreams, because, you know, for us, I came from a plant breeding background where I learned uh, the conventional plant breeding. And uh, this is simply a tool that I had to learn that I incorporated it in my research. And so we never really thought of this as something that is going to be seen as very controversial. We knew it was something different, but uh, we also saw having grown up in India that I have seen, I have experienced firsthand how improvements in agriculture, especially the kind of new seed uh, that the new seeds that the farmers could use help improve their livelihood and improve the food situation in India. And so, you know, one could see if with one single gene, if Norman Borlaug could feed a billion more people, 
with the dwarf genes that he introduced into wheat and then similar dwarf genes that were introduced into rice. Then a lot of us plant breeders thought, wow, now we have a, a new tool that we could bring in many such single genes and put it into our crop plants and make them grow without the use of pesticides or fungicides or even probably uh, without fertilizers one day. And we saw this as a, a simply a new tool that would be a, an important arsenal in our ability to feed the world. Never saw it as going to be as going to be so opposed, especially by the the NGO groups across the world. So when we think about the BT Brinjal and its impact in Bangladesh, which we discussed was already very positive, um, rumors have it that it really has escaped the border and has now come across to India. And what is known about that? Well, that simply shows you can't see you can't sh- keep a good thing away from the hands of the farmers. And uh, as you know, a lot of the borders in, in our countries, like between India and Bangladesh, are porous. And so it was simply inevitable that something uh, like this would would slowly move out of Bangladesh and be in India. And it's just something we have seen again and again happen. When Brazil resisted uh, growing uh, soybeans, uh, GM soybeans for a long time, uh, officially, uh, yet the bre- farmers in Brazil were growing that for a long time. Even the BT cotton that almost every Indian, 7 million Indian farmers who grow it, uh, started as a clandestine crop that was grown illegally in India. And so this is what's happening and a lot of us who have been around are not surprised by it. Well, all we read you know, online, on websites, and when we listen to the uh, anti-GMO pundits, when they when they talk, they always say, but the big companies control the seeds and, and they have a stranglehold on small farmers. And so how are they getting these seeds if, if the big companies control them? Right. Again, this just shows that, you know, not that all the narrative that we hear from anti-GMO folks are right. This BT Brinjal has really nothing to do with the big companies. It was developed uh, in Bangladesh by the Bangladesh government with uh, assistance from USAID, with active participation from university researchers. And uh, it has now come to India and it is grown by small farmers. And it just shows that uh, the, the farmers, whether big or small, are always open to innovation. And if they find something that will help them produce more and cost less and is safe, they're going to embrace it. Well, if the government of India has, you know, they were originally looking at this, why have they resisted legalizing these resources for farmers? Like what, what's holding them back? I, I think it's, again, very political. It's not just in India. We see this across the world. Uh, over the past 20 years, a lot of anti-development forces, like many of these uh, uh, NGOs and uh, so-called uh, uh, environmental organizations, have opposed uh, these GM crops, and they have made a, this as a, a very big issue. And many of the, the politicians in India and other places are simply have become very apprehensive 
about the noises coming from these groups. And also, I think the media has played into the hands of many of these anti-farmer organizations and have simply amplified their voices. Well, uh, in, in, real, in reality, uh, the opposition to biotech is small, as we have seen uh, when people and farmers have a choice to select for something that is uh, healthy and useful, they will go for it. And I think it's, this just shows uh, what has happened today or yesterday in India where a small group of farmers took law into their own hands and planted some of these BT crops, uh, unapproved strains of BT cotton, for instance, just shows that farmers are not going to wait for too long for the government to, to keep interfering with their access to technology, and they'll just take these things into their own hands. I'm really interested in that farmer story, but maybe something else first is who in their right mind or what organization would possibly stand against technology getting to some of the poorest farmers in the world? I always wonder about that and uh, their, um, their goals because many of these small farmers are really very small. You know, I grew up uh, in India and my grandfather was an agricultural officer and I have spent a lot of time growing up with these farmers. And they're really, many of them are very small and very poor. And when they now, in just in the last 10 or 15 years, we have seen um, progress coming into many of the small farmers in India in the form of economic revitalization and opening up the, the economy. And so they're very anxious to embrace new technologies and new innovation that would help improve their productivity. And so uh, you wonder why anybody would come and interfere in, in their ability of these farmers to access these technologies, which only would help them to improve their livelihoods. Well, on, on the flip side of that argument, so you can say, okay, there are organizations that are standing against technology to reach the uh, small farmer. But on the other hand, there are people who always claim to be these advocates for small farmers and seed sovereignty and, you know, let the farmer decide and give farmers choice. Like folks like Vandana Shiva, you know, mm -hmm. where is she on this issue? Oh, Vandana Shiva, as you know, has made a big career out of herself by opposing these technologies, uh, especially the, the, G, the GMCs. And so she's very much against it. It's simply because her, her audience is really not in India or the farmers. Vandana Shiva charges about $25,000, $30,000 per, per speech and uh, at, in the United States and many other Western countries. And it's a small group of people uh, in these countries who are willing to pay and encourage people like Vandana Shiva to come out of India and say that Indian farmers do not like these technologies, which is simply false. Anytime, anywhere in the world, when farmers are given a choice to have access to technologies that will improve their livelihoods, they will do that. And if if Vandana Shiva says that let farmers make a choice, let them do it. Uh, let them see which technology is good or bad for them. And if they feel that it is going to help improve them and if it is cost effective, 
then they they're going to choose what is in their best interest well what about those farmers in uh, maharashtra the ones who staged this recent protest you know what did they do and and what's the penalty if you plant seeds that are illegal well what happened yesterday was very interesting because it's kind of very historic uh, more than 1000 farmers came together in a small village in this place uh, in india and they in an act of defiance uh, that is reminiscent of what mahatma gandhi did uh, about 100 years ago in his protest against the british when he walked off and made salt illegally because making salt was illegal at the time when the british controlled our country and in an in a symbolic act of defiance he made salt Uh, in a salt march and so the farmers not very far from where he did that in the state of maharashtra planted these uh, bt hd cotton seeds that have been approved all over the world as safe and simply been not allowed into india as a, a matter of civil disobedience and this simply shows that the farmers are not going to take any longer that the governments which is in cahoots with some of these anti-farmer organizations is blocking access to the technologies. And so what do you think will happen next? Do you think that these kinds of protests will bring attention to really the true issue of seed sovereignty and farmers making up their own mind or do you think this will just ignite more conversations about the uh, dangers of unapproved technologies and more restrictions? I hope this is going to open up uh, more meaningful conversations already when i have seen in the last 24 hours the media reports on this farmer protests have been very sympathetic to farmers needs and i think it is opening up some meaningful dialogues already even new york times which as you know has not been very farmer friendly has come up with a, a very positive uh, story on the on this protest that happened yesterday i believe this will also open up the 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 minds and eyes of the governments in looking at the issue more carefully and will help them realize that they just can't ignore the voice of the farmer uh, when it comes to what is important for them well it's a fascinating story and i hope that you keep in touch with us as it continues to unfold and uh, especially if there's people who are on the ground there who who you know who can give us further insight it's a uh, it's time that farmers play a leading role in fighting for the technology they want not just in places like india but even in the united states that with issues like glyphosate and other things they're getting to the point where now good technologies are looking to be restricted and um, perhaps even banned and so you know I, i please keep in touch with me on this and if people want to learn more about you or read you on twitter where do they find you Well, they could always follow me. My Twitter handle is at agbioworld, A-G-B-I-O-W-O-R-L-D. This is the name of a website that I used to run and I still do. And they just follow me on Twitter or on Facebook. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Dr. Prakash. It's great to hear your voice and look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you very much, Kevin. Enjoy talking to you. And thank you listeners for listening to another week of Talking Biotech podcast. Share with a friend, um 
write a review on iTunes. We're coming up towards our 200th episode, and you're listening to this one in what is the first episode of our fifth year. I never thought it would happen. So thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech. Sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.